exactly what is this truth, what is this nugget about the filling of the Holy Spirit? It is an exciting topic. And yet, there is a whole lot of confusion. Let me see if I can use an illustration this way. Some of you who have had teenagers, you have tried to teach them to drive. Okay, you've gone through that experience that improves your prayer life greatly when you're teaching the kids. Now the kids, you know that when they go through the class, if they have it, uh, if they have the class and they read the manual, they're perfect drivers. They have it all down pat, right? And they can tell you anyway what you're doing wrong, even though they don't know how. And then they have the driver's training. And after that, there's no problem, right? They're perfect drivers. You say, absolutely not. They can know it up here. They can even, they can even have that, that one practice time. But what really, what really helps somebody to understand driving and become a defensive driver? Experience. Just doing it time and time and time again. Um, do you ever notice how some of us had all the answers of parenting before we had kids? We knew how other people's kids should be raised. We saw those kids in the store, and it was, if that was my kid, I would know what to do. And then the time came that you had children, and when your children had a meltdown, your children had their episodes, your children couldn't be calmed down because of night terrors, whatever, all of a sudden you feel totally inadequate at points. And you say, I, I just don't know. The manual didn't seem to give me all the answers, and the kids didn't get birth with the manual. That was the problem. And so sometimes we approach some subjects, some topics that really it takes a little bit more of living experience to get our handle on that. Well, sometimes that is the way it is with scriptural truth. And I think one of those truths is this whole idea about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And people struggle with it, and they have difficulties. Part of the reason is because, as we mentioned the last couple of weeks, there's erroneous teaching. There's a lot of erroneous teaching about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Part of it is because in some churches there's total lack of teaching. There isn't even an explanation. Part of it is because when uh, we look around or we're raised in a home, we're not talk, we don't talk about, we don't discuss this idea that, hey, mom, dad, how are you doing spiritually? Well, I'm trying to work with being yielded to the Spirit of God and it's not discussed to explain how do you get filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a mute subject by those who are modeling them. I think part of the reason of the confusion is an area I want to deal with this evening. And that is because the terminology that is used in the Old Testament and it parallels and sometimes it uses the same idea of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's not the same when it was stated or used then as it is today. And so when we read the Bible, we go, oh, wait, wait, wait. If it's mentioned in the Bible, it was always the same throughout all the ages. Not true. Not true on a lot of topics. Did, for instance, does priesthood change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Yeah. Yes. Just because the idea of dietary food were mentioned in the Old Testament, does it carry on into practice in the New Testament? <coughs> yes, no. No, no. Does the tabernacle idea, the temple idea, does it carry on that we still have to go to a certain facility to worship God, like they did in the Old Testament? The answer is no, no. And so too with some of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. There's change, but unless we back up and we talk about it, people won't know that change. As well, when we talk about it, the, the idea, there are some terms used about the Holy Spirit that innately bring a lot of confusion in people's mind. There are several symbols that are used for the Holy Spirit. There are several um, illustrations used that some people, immediately when they read this, it throws them for a loop. For instance, the most common symbol or, or statement about the Holy Spirit is 
that he is like a dove. Do you remember where that's found in Scripture? In what occasion that it starts with the spirit like a dove? When Jesus was baptized, okay, and it talks in each one of the Gospels that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus. And at that time, that, okay, that happened, and there was a reason for it happening, and there was a reason for that object. Now, why would he say and identify that the Holy Spirit is coming down like a dove? Is it because the Holy Spirit appeared as a dove, or his descent was like a dove, or he had a feathery, floating uh, descent like a dove? I'm not exactly sure which one, if all of those it is, but this much I know. That when he uses that idea that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, it was not to suggest that the Holy Spirit is part of creation, like a bird, that's, uh, that's a lesser part of cre creation that um, didn't have personality, that didn't have the idea of divinity. That's not the case at all. We are not getting a picture or a symbol used to decry the Holy Spirit. Rather, when it talks about that Holy Spirit descending like a dove, it was in that text given with the idea that, okay, the Holy Spirit is visible. John the Baptist, the others, they could actually see the descent of the Holy Spirit so that there was confirmation from God to them that Jesus was being authenticated. As well, when you think about it, this descent is emphasized in those texts that it is from heaven, coming down from the Lord. Again, divine, God-given authentication. But the symbol itself, why would they pick a dove? Why would that be the representation? The possible suggestions are that the dove in the New Testament was something of innocency, something of purity, the idea that, that here he is, a peace symbol, a, pure, a symbol of purity that's expressing that that's that character, that's that personality of the Holy Spirit who came down upon Jesus. Can you think of any other symbols used for the Holy Spirit in the Bible? There's the dove. Okay, tongues of fire. Okay, we have in the New Testament the idea of, oh, you threw me up. I was thinking fire was next. Do you have another one? Okay, wind. Okay, let's do wind instead. Okay. Do you remember when wind is used to describe the Holy Spirit? Okay. There's that in John 3 where the, where the wind listed or chooses to go. Any other text? Not necessarily. Okay. Okay. There's another time in the New Testament where it talks about the Holy Spirit and specifically uses the symbol of, actually two symbols of the same text. One is the tongues of fire and the other one is... The sound of, like a twister, like a tornado, something that's very, very loud. That shows up. Ezekiel used the idea of the Holy Spirit like a wind when it's talking about, um, you know, them bones, them bones, them, you know, that whole thing about putting the bones together. It talks about the Holy Spirit like a breeze or like a wind at that point. Why is it used? Well, back in John chapter 3, the wind goes where it, where it chooses. The idea is that the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He is not controlled. It has power. The idea of the wind is it can be refreshing. The idea of this breeze, this wind, is it breathing life into an individual or a character. So you have symbols that are used again, but I remind you, those symbols are not to say that the Holy Spirit is, is a, just a power. The Holy Spirit is just a, you know, a, a force in nature. That's not what he's doing. He's using it to give us an idea that this is the... This is part of the personality of the person that's descriptive. That's descriptive. There's a, a clothing. Okay? Fire better be up there. I thought it was the second one. But it talks about being clothed in the Spirit. And we all understand what that is because the clothes cover us. 
the clothes protect us. That whole idea that, again, it's a tool that the Holy Spirit is, isn't a tool in itself, but the Holy Spirit is a person that does that protecting. So, the fire went not erased, okay? Um, so, from my notes. But the fire is used in what text? Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes to set aside fire. Now, why would he use fire to describe the Holy Spirit? Well, in the Old Testament, was fire ever used as a descriptive illustration or a picture of God? The pillar of fire, Exodus chapter 3. The, um, the, um, um, Moses talking to it. Um, the flame bush, thank you. Okay, the fire coming down from heaven, sucking up and, and lapping up the entire sacrifice. The fire that is at the throne of God in Isaiah 6. So you have frequent references of God with the idea of this fire is refining, this fire is pure, it's got its power. And again, the Holy Spirit is not an object, but the Holy Spirit is a person. Some of his personal traits are described via these illustrations, via these objects. And so some people read that and they'll say, okay, the Holy Spirit is a force, the Holy Spirit is is uh, part of creation. No, 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 he is God. We already talked about the last two weeks. But yet there is some confusion that goes a little bit further because when we come to the Old Testament, there are times when in the Old Testament he uses the same terms as in the New Testament, but it doesn't have the same meanings. One of those is the filling of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, you will find this frequently, where you will find that different people or groups of people are experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit. You have a number of them that are in groups. The patriarchs, for instance. Several of the patriarchs, we have specific statements that, like Joseph, the Spirit of the Lord was in him. In fact, Pharaoh says, can anybody find another individual who, upon whom the Spirit of the Lord is filled? It was within him. Moses, the top of what he is filled with the Spirit. Joshua, God takes the Spirit from him and fills him with, uh, from, from Moses and gives it to Joshua. The 70 elders who are prophesying and working with Moses, God gives him, gives them that same type of Spirit that is upon Moses, and they are filled with the Spirit. So you have several of those occasions where it is specifically stated they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In craftsmen, in doing the tabernacle, the temple, Bezalel and others who were building the tabernacle, they were all of a sudden filled with the Spirit that phrases you so that they could take their, their uh, ability to work with the irons and work with the golds, work with the gems, and the Spirit filled them so that as they were doing their assigned tasks, they were empowered to even do it better than what they normally could do by the filling of the Holy Spirit. You have the judges, and this frequently has in the book of Judges, where several of the different characters, it specifically says, like Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, it says that they were filled with the Spirit. Samson is also filled with the Spirit on several occasions. Each time that he's filled with the Spirit, all of a sudden what happens to him? He's able to have this strength that is beyond it. By the way, but just going to his story, is it because he worked out so much? Absolutely not. It's not his physique, it's not his physical appearance that he looked like, you know, the uh, Mr. Universe. If that were the case, they wouldn't have asked him the question, where do you get your strength? It wasn't apparent, it wasn't obvious. He probably looked like some of you, okay? That, you know, well-built, strong, but not where it's just going to be all. We can see the muscles are rippling. 
Rather, the Spirit of God would come upon him, empower him, and with that heightened ability, he was able to defend the Israelites, defeat the Philistines on multiple occasions, take the jawbone of the ass, for instance, go into battle and slay a thousand Philistines. God took his abilities, heightened them through this filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, after his hair was cut, and he had violated the vows of the Nazarene, he did not understand, in the King James, he wist not that the Spirit had departed from him. So this filling of the Holy Spirit, it came and it went at times in the Old Testament. You have the same thing show up with some of the kings and the rulers. You have Saul, who when he was anointed, he's filled with the Spirit. He starts to be able to um, prophesy. He gets into uh, with others and he's singing the praises and talks about him leading the people of Israel. He is filled with the Spirit. He gathers the tribes together to go against the enemies that have threatened the nation. And that's his first call to battle. He has given the strength, the direction by the filling of the Holy Spirit. But later on, it talks about him losing the filling of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is left from him. David, when he's a young lad and Samuel comes along and anoints him, he is filled with the Spirit. He is able to play the music. He is able to go into battle against Goliath. He is able then to do a lot of accomplishments. But then later on, after he sins with Bathsheba, what does he pray and ask God not to do? Psalm 51, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So what we have is in these pictures of different characters that they were given abilities, they were strengthened, they were helped to do different jobs for God. And so in that Old Testament era, many different peoples were filled with the Spirit, were empowered, were given special abilities, heightened abilities to do the work of the Lord. Now that, that shows up, again, that phrase. And so we made this conclusion already. Many different people had the filling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and we've mentioned some of those already. They were filled so that they were empowered and able to do a special task assigned by God Almighty. That's the second fact that we would note about the filling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. A third fact, without the, uh, without the spelling being wrong or the, or the capitalizing, they could lose the filling of the Holy Spirit, and they, at times they wouldn't even know that it happened until that they didn't realize the Holy Spirit was God. So in the Old Testament, the filling of the Spirit would come upon some select individuals. It would come, but it wasn't permanent. The filling of the Holy Spirit would help them to do different tasks. The filling of the Holy Spirit as well did not override what we're going to call human finiteness. What I mean by that is this. In the Old Testament, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, did they still have human limitations? Or, wait a minute, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, therefore, there is no limitation. I, as a prophet, who am filled by the Holy Spirit, I understand everything that I am prophesying. No. In the New Testament, it says that holy men of God, where they spoke as they were led by the Holy Spirit, but they necessarily did not understand everything they wrote. They wrote about Messiah. Does that mean they understood he would come twice? No. Did, it, uh, did that mean they understood that he was going to humble himself to the point that he'd be born in a manger? No. Does that mean that they understood that he would die and resurrect and ascend? No. But they wrote it. They were led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, but they still had some human finiteness. They didn't have this deity um, knowledge. There was limitations. Let's take another step. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they still displayed human weaknesses. 
What I mean by that is they still struggle. That filling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament did not make them pure from all sin. They still battle with temptation. We've mentioned several of those already tonight. We have Samson, this he-man with the she weakness. Okay, that he, though he is filled with the Holy Spirit, did he get drawn uh, sexually towards other peoples, the other lady, the multiple ladies? The answer is yes. So that filling of the Holy Spirit didn't barricade, didn't block temptation. Who else did we say? Saul. Did Saul, through pride and arrogance, he was filled with the Spirit, but through pride and arrogance, did he still struggle and fall? The answer is yes. Did David, though he was filled with the Holy Spirit, did he commit adultery? Did he commit murder? So filling of the Holy Spirit in that Old Testament era did not prevent temptation or yielding to the temptation. And so we want to make another thought here. Filling with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament era, it did not guarantee full success in people's ministries. The prophets went out and prayed. They were filled with the Spirit. Let's take Jeremiah. He is filled with the Spirit. He goes out and preaches. Therefore, as he preaches, everybody who hears him responded to the gospel because he's filled with the Spirit. The answer is absolutely not. How many converts did Jeremiah have? One. In his entire ministry, he had one. And that was his secretary, Barak. Otherwise, he didn't have anybody listen to him. Even though the people gathered with him that one time in Jeremiah 38, 39, they gathered with him and they said, Jeremiah, speak to the Lord. Whatever God tells you to do, we will do it. Absolutely, he says, no. No, you've told me this before. And when I've gotten a message before, you also come back later on and say, we're not going to listen. And then we have more problems. So I'm not going to go to God on your behalf. No, no, Jeremiah, do it. And they plead with him. They beg with him. This time we mean it. This time you go, you ask God, we will do whatever God says. So he goes to God, comes back a few days later and tells the crowd. He says, God has told me what you should do. You should remain right here. Do not leave this area. Though Jerusalem has been destroyed, stay right here, camp out here. God will take care of us and he will protect us. Their response is, absolutely not. That's a foolish plan. It's dangerous. We don't have food to shelter. We should stay here. If we stay here, this is a dangerous spot. The enemy might come back. We're going to head down to Egypt. He said, no, no. God says, do not go down into Egypt. They insist they go down into Egypt. And every one of them who takes that trek to Egypt, they die down there. So, even though Jeremiah is filled with the Spirit, that didn't guarantee that everybody would listen to him. Same with Ezekiel, Micah, and some of the other prophets, where it specifically stated they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So we make a conclusion that the filling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was selective. It was not universal. Not every believer, not every Jewish uh, Jewish convert or proselyte was filled with the Holy Spirit. As well, in the Old Testament, let's make this observation, it is not the pattern for the filling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament era. Why is that? Why do we want to conclude that? Because in the Old Testament, it was predicted that the Holy Spirit's ministry would change. In Jeremiah chapters 30, 31, 32, 33, there is a prediction that is made by Jeremiah where he is talking about a future plan that's coming up. And in this future plan, God is going to make huge changes. It's called the New Covenant. Where in the future, he's going to make a new covenant with Israel and the peoples of faith. And he's going to change the way that he's been working with them. And so this new covenant concept is what is talked about. And in Jeremiah, he emphasizes two big changes more than any others when the new covenant comes. The one change would be the Holy Spirit 
would indwell individuals long term. Not short term, where the filling could come and the filling could go. He says in the future when there's this, this new ministry of the new covenant of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be, the Holy Spirit's going to come on somebody and he's going to stay on them. The other difference is, in that new covenant, the Holy Spirit would dwell within those people on a permanent basis. So you have, they had a whole two-fold thought, the believer's going to be, he's going to be in the believer's heart, and he's going to remain permanently. Okay, and it's going to, by the way, I should add to this, there's that third aspect that it's going to be upon all the believers. That was the new covenant. All the believers, in their hearts, long term. That's what Jeremiah predicted. So we come, and ages go by. Israel has been destroyed uh, in Jer after Jeremiah's ministry. They've been out of the land for a period of time. They finally revive. They get back into the land. And several, several decades into a couple centuries go by, and all of a sudden there's a character who shows up. The character is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is starting to introduce a new covenant. Do you remember when he used that term? Anybody remember specifically when he said, I am bringing a new covenant, introducing it to you? It is the Last Supper. You know, take this bread, eat this, you know, and drink this wine. This cup is the New Testament. Okay, the New Covenant is literally the idea. And so Jesus was instituting, inaugurating this new covenant that was predicted by Jeremiah, which involved a change in the Holy Spirit's ministry. So when we come into the New Testament, here's some of the dilemma we have. And here's part of the confusion that people have, people like you and I, that when we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, we want to run back into the Old Testament and say, well, the Old Testament gives us all the information. Hold it. Time out. The Old Testament was for a different era, and it had a different ministry, the Holy Spirit, which it even predicted it would change with a new covenant. Even though it uses terms that are similar, that doesn't mean it's the same concept. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit worked the same way. The Holy Spirit filled people in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean he did it exactly the same as in the New Testament. And it was the identical ministry. So you've got to be careful when you're reading a text that you're reading the text that applies to the age you live in. That is just simple biblical hermeneutics. And so when we come, let's make it a little bit more complicated for all of us in this room. Okay, a little bit more in-depth, a little bit more of beyond just basic math. Let's do a little bit more of some Bible calculus, if you would. Bible you know, physics, and take us into a deeper understanding of the scriptures. And the, the phrase, the filling of the Holy Spirit, is used frequently in the Gospels and Acts. Yet it doesn't always mean the same thing in the epistles. So we're looking and saying, okay, that filling of the Holy Spirit is used in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean the way it's used, that doesn't mean the terminology means the same as for today. Well, that's confusing. But now it gets more confusing. The way it's used and the way it operated in the Gospel and Acts wasn't always the same as today. Well, that shouldn't surprise you, because the Gospels are in what era of time? They are located in the text that's called the New Testament, but in chronological history, where were the, the Gospels, where are they located? In the Old Testament. They're still in the Old Testament era. Well, let me just throw this out. Is there still a temple that people have to go to worship at in the Gospels? Do they still have to do sacrifices? Yes. Do they still have to go through the priests? 
Yes, are there still the dietary codes? Yes, all that is yes, until when what event changes where all of a sudden the tabernacle, the temple, is opened up to everybody, where the curtain literally splits, and now there is no longer this holy of holies that you have to go through a priest, but physically the curtain splits, demonstrating that we are now embarking into a new era where people can come directly to God without a priest. When did that temple experience that split within its, within its logistics? When Christ died, okay? And so Jesus Christ is living in and following, which makes perfect sense as a Bible believer, why did Jesus follow the Old Testament commands? He was living in that era of time. They were still pertinent. From Moses all the way up to Jesus Christ, until he dies, they are still living under the Old Covenant, under the Old System. And so even the Holy Spirit was operating the way he did under the Old Covenant, which Jesus had said, now when the New Covenant comes, there is going to be some changes. But the New Covenant didn't come until after his death. And so at his death, he's starting to institute it. He's starting to inaugurate the changes. And so that means the Gospels are not, are not in the New Covenant age. They, they're located in the New Covenant part of the Bible. In actuality, they, don't be, they, they are a transition from the Old to the New, and especially the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts still has a lot of different transition going taking place. In the book of Acts, the believers are still going to the temple, and they are still doing some of their worship there. But all of a sudden, by the end of the book of Acts, things are transitioning, they're changing, we're covering that, covering that 30-year period, so that there's going to be some of these changes. Okay, it's going to take place. In the beginning of the book of Acts, there isn't even a church that's organized the way it is by the end of the book of Acts. By the end of the book of Acts, we have pastors. We have deacons, but not at the beginning of the book of Acts. At the beginning of the book of Acts, who's the leaders at that moment? The apostles. And so there's a transition, there's a change. And so some of the things that happen in the book of Acts, I'll give you the, the age-old, age-old one. At the beginning of the book of Acts, anybody and everybody seems to be speaking out with tongues. By the end of the book of Acts, what are they told? Ladies are no longer supposed to speak in tongues, and if somebody's going to speak in tongues, they do it by two or three one at a time, okay, and before they speak, you have to find out if there's an interpreter. Well, that wasn't the way it happened at the beginning of the book of Acts. Why? Because at the beginning of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit was in a transitional phase. He was working and moving, and so when we read in the book of Acts and the Gospels, we have to be careful to remember, number one, that's a transitional time. And so our polity, our practice, our doctrines, though it is laying the foundation, things were adjusting. They were, they were here. I wanted to put up some cupboards in my basement. And so I was putting up these cupboards and I was by myself trying to do this, hold up the cupboard, drill, and screw it all in. I am not mechanical. Okay? It was a horrible experience. You know, because I dropped the shell several times and wouldn't you know, when I'm trying to balance this thing and screw it in at the same time and I'm standing on my trusty old ladder that's really secure, a metal chair, um, I'm standing on that and I'm drilling and trying to do this thing, I get two phone calls. And both of them leave a message that says, you must call me right away. Right. Okay? And then when I call back, it's like, well, where were you? Where, why didn't you call me back right away? And so, you know, I'm trying to drill this thing out. So, in order to get it up here, over my head, and again, I put up these temporary boards. 
that I stack on top cardboard boxes that I am not good at mechanical stuff. It's just everything improvised. I'm one of those type of people, if I can't reach and my ladder won't reach, I'll get two chairs, put my ladder on the chairs, and then climb up. You know, Mr. Dangerous, right? Now, don't go, ah, uh, you guys do the same thing, some of you. And so I do this kind of thing where I put on these boards that were jump boards, and I built this brace to hold up the cupboard so that it was at least within an inch or two, and then I could kind of maneuver it like that so I was putting the cupboard up. But my intent was not to leave those braces long term. They helped me to get it in place, screw it in, and by the way, I got it level. I was so excited. I got something level for a change. Um, miracle, miracles. I got it level, and I didn't leave the brace. Afterwards, I took the brace up. Well, this is in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is getting things in place. He's using braces that are appropriate, that are proper, but he's going to remove them. And so in his ministry, during his transition time, you and I need to be careful that when they use terms, we don't read into the terms everything that is explained in the epistles. You see, we live in the era of the epistles. We live in the era where that's the most instruction for how we are operating in this time period. So when we go to the epistles, and it talks about the filling of the Spirit, like in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is where in the epistles, the part of the scriptures that's written to our specific application for us living today, this is the manual for you and me that is most appropriate and proper. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Be not drunk with... Wine. And that has nothing to do with giving approval to go out and drink. Okay, that, that's not what this passage is about. This passage has no commentary, no social commentary on drinking alcoholic beverages. That's not the point. He's using just a text to give you an idea. Don't be drunk with wine wherein is, what you might want Excess. The idea is debauchery, where, it, where you do some really stupid things. Okay? He says, don't do that, but instead be filled with the Spirit of God. That's the only epistle comment about the filling of the Holy Spirit. But what he says there, the grammar is different than what he says about the filling of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It is because it is now giving us thorough explanation in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, what the filling is. And it does not match up everything that happened with the filling of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts or in the Gospels or in the Old Testament. And so we've already explained that in the Old Testament it was a different era. Part of the Gospels were a different era. But the book of Acts is where we have the difficulty. Acts is the first one that describes New Testament believers, those who are embarking for the first time in the, in the covenant, New Covenant, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, let me just throw some of these passages. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, you have the filling of the Holy Spirit for the very first time described in how it's doing. In fact, let's back up. Do you remember there are two times Jesus predicted that there's going to be this new ministry of the Holy Spirit? The two occasions that he predicted is one, I know I'm, I'm, I'm really boring a lot of you, okay? but just bear with me. Because this is, this is so important to understand the theology behind all this. When is, the, when is the time that Jesus said, Okay, when I leave, I am not going to leave you comfortless. I will send you another comforter. Do you remember when that is? It's the night before he dies. It's called the last Last summer, it goes from John chapter 13 through John 17. It is hours before he dies. 
In that text, he's going to give us a lot of information about the Holy Spirit, detailed information. In fact, turn there. Okay, we'll come back to it in a minute. But go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and he is talking about, and this is the time, remember, this is the same meal he says, I am going to introduce to you a new covenant, the new covenant. And, the, and what's really demonstrating the signature of the new covenant is my blood, my body being sacrificed to bring it in. And so during that meal, he talks about the Holy Spirit. Here is one of the couple texts that he talks about. Go to chapter 14, verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comfort. Okay, okay, another, the word another in the original language means one who's identical to what I'm talking who I am. We're going to be the same thing. You know, there was two different words for another. One meant totally different, one meant very much the same. He is using the very much the same here in this text. I will give you another propping up, another uh, you know, helper. I will give you another guide, assistance. And then watch what he says. I will give you a different comforter, another one, and he may abide with you forever. Oh, okay, this is the big change Jeremiah talked about. Go down to verse 17. Even, he defines who it is. This comforter is even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. In other words, it is only for who? It's only for believers. Because it sees him not, and it knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you. Okay? He's associating with you, but he shall be... Yeah. Now with that new covenant that I'm going to introduce, he's going to be in you. In all of you. And he's going to stay there, as he's already mentioned, in verse 16, forever. That's exactly what Jeremiah predicted would happen. What Jesus is saying, okay, I'm telling you, it still hasn't happened at the time of the Last Supper, but it's going to happen. Go to the book of Acts. Go to the book of Acts and look at chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 opens, the, the book opens up with Jesus ready to do what? What is the major event of Acts chapter 1? Jesus Christ, what? Ministry. He ascends up into heaven. Okay, that's the key. So this is between his death, burial, resurrection. Forty days he's with the disciples. Acts chapter 1, we read about, okay, he, uh, go down to verse 4. Being assembled together with the believers, okay, with his followers, he commanded them that they should not depart from where? From Jerusalem. But they were to do what? Wait. They were to wait. Stay in Jerusalem. Why? How long? Well, that's the rest of verse 4. Wait for what? For the promise of the Father, which you heard from who? Which you heard from me. And he says, okay, what is that promise? Verse 5. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. When? Not many days from now. And he said, they go, what? Okay, this is new. This is new. Okay? Now keep with mind, what did Jesus say it's going to be? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we, Jesus predicted it. He said in the upper room, there's going to be a comforter, it's going to be an all the believer, in all, forever. Just what Jeremiah predicted. He then told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, wait for the promise. He calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? But when we go to Acts chapter 2, watch what happens. Acts chapter 2, not many days later, about 10 days later, you have the day of Pentecost. You look at what it says. And when Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 1, was fully come, the 
the disciples were all in one court in one place, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them these tongues of fire that sat upon him. And verse 4 says they were what? They were filled with the Spirit. Hold it. Now, wait, hold it. What did Jesus call it in Acts chapter 1? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's it called in Acts chapter 2? The filling of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Okay. So they're both the same. No, they're not. No, they're not. But in this transitional time, he's using the same terminology. But in a, period, but in a short time, it's going to change. Okay? Now, when they get filled with the Spirit, he says, you wait for this Holy Spirit, when you're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit, and when that happens, you shall be what? Witnesses, where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and on to the uttermost parts of the earth. So it's going to empower them to do the ministry that was assigned to them, similar to what happened in the Old Testament. So let's go a little bit further. Okay? Then in Acts chapter 2, after... They've been filled with the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit. First time it's happened that there's this baptism of the Holy Spirit that was predicted that would be in all believers permanently. Then Peter gets up and preaches. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter is preaching a message, and he says, and we love this part of the passage, repent and be what? Be baptized, every one of you. By the way, who's he speaking to? Is he speaking to just the men in Jerusalem? Is he speaking to just the older people in Jerusalem? Is he speaking to just the preachers? No, he's preaching, he's speaking to a huge crowd. He's speaking to all this mass of people that is male, female, young, old, they're all gathered together, and he's preaching to them. He says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why should you be baptized? Because of the remission of sins. And then what will happen? He gives, a, he gives a promise here. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now we've got another terminology that's referring. You all will receive the gift that comes from God. What is that gift? Jesus called it a promise. And it's the idea of the baptism, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's going to be new that never happened in the Old Testament. But in the, but in the book of Acts, it's also referred to as the filling of the Holy Spirit, which term is used in the Old Testament as well. But there's a different meaning here. Because now he's using familiar terms and new terms trying to create the transition in the mind of the people. And so what happens as the story goes on, then all of a sudden these disciples who are filled in Acts chapter 2, well, go to Acts chapter 4, verse 8, the same group, including Peter, he is filled with the Spirit later on. So he's filled at Pentecost, but he's also filled later on. And then it reads several different accounts in the book of Acts that are new believers, that they are filled with the Spirit for the first time. Okay? Now, Saul is filled, Cornelius and his household are filled, and we even read about John's disciples. They used to follow John the Baptist. They didn't even hear about the Holy Spirit. They all of a sudden come to a point where they... Paul's preaching to them, they respond and they have their belief moment and they are filled with the Spirit. Same terms, but in each one of those cases, it's the first ministry of the Holy Spirit in each one of their hearts. The first ministry that they experienced after they had come to a point of belief. Then you have, in Acts chapter 13, two different accounts where there are other believers who have already been saved who have already been 
baptized or filled with the Spirit, using those terms, and it says they are filled again with the Spirit of God. Here's what you got. It's a very confusing text. You've got a confusing terminology that when we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, it was a coming and going, an empowering. And it did happen, but to a select group that God chose for special tasks. Come to the book of Acts, he talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit, and he equates it to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which for some, it happened once that we re-record. For others, they had they experienced a couple times. It's also called the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then when you go into the epistles, the filling of the Holy Spirit is more defined. And it doesn't do exactly the same, doesn't operate the same as what had happened in the book of Acts. Okay? For your sake, does that all sound confusing? Okay? Can you understand why people get confused about this doctrine? Because you're using the same term, but it what? It changes. It means something different in different occasions. It didn't operate the same in the book of Acts as it operates in the epistles. So you say, well, wait a minute, then how can we know? Very simply. We study out the text, we make comparisons, we understand that in the book of Acts, if we're going, we don't just grab the one phrase and use our idea of it and then pin that on every one of the passages. Instead, we look at all the passages, we compare scripture with scripture, we find out that in the book of, uh, the book of Acts, they equated baptism, filling, the gift of the Holy Spirit, could be all one and the same. But later on, they changed the terminology to say that the filling of the Holy Spirit was only one of those different ministries and became more defined. And so it's not that hard if we want to take the time to study it and to understand so we're not confused. But here's the question. Is the filling of the Holy Spirit the same as the baptism? Some people teach that. Can you understand why they would say that? Because the terms are used interchangeably in the very beginning of the book of Acts. So I understand why they would do that. I understand uh, that some would ask this question. Who can be filled? When do you get filled? Here, I'll fill this up here. When, was, when were the apostles filled? At, at they, it says that they were filled at Pentecost. Were they already saved for a period of time? Yes. Okay, Paul gets filled right when he gets saved. Cornelius gets filled right when he gets saved. Then the disciples of John, they get filled years later after they get saved. Okay, when they haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. So when does somebody get filled? Well, that's a big question. That should be understood. What has happened? When does it occur? How long time with salvation? Can we lose the Holy Spirit the way that they lost him in the Old Testament? Okay, so you know, can you lose the filling? Can you lose the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? All of these are really vital and important questions that need to be researched. They need to be studied. And don't sit back and go, oh, wait, that's just so confusing. You've made the, the waters more muddy, and I know I have. Okay, I really have. You know, for some of you, I've stirred it up and you go, it would have been so much better that if you hadn't even explained these things, then I would have stayed in my ignorance and I would have just kind of just assumed that, you know, whatever I heard somebody say. Well, man, you've got to be able to answer others who would show you these passages. And they would say, well, here's why I believe in this. Here's why I believe in that. Here's why it happened. And, and they'll respond. They'll say, well, they spoke in tongues in the book of Acts. Is that true? Did they? The answer is absolutely positively yes. Okay? And you can't, you can't just with, with 
you know, a non-confrontational, uh, uh, just a, a fear of saying something wrong, that I'm not going to deal with tough topics. Okay. Here's a, here's a tough one. Your kids come home from school and they say to you, where did I come from? Okay. Is that a tough topic? Okay. Your immediate reaction is, I'm not going to talk to you about this so, because this is a tough topic. And yet you say, okay. Some of you would say, okay, I've got to get into it. This is the God-given moment. I'm going to explain where you came from. You give all the answers. And they go, oh, okay. Any questions? Yeah, did we come from Harrisburg or did we come from Myerstown? Okay, so you're totally, you know, they, they weren't prepared for that moment. Okay, they didn't need all that detail. But you get terrified. Yeah, or the reaction is kind of weird. I remember sitting down with one of my boys and it was that teachable moment to talk about where did you come from. They got the giggle fit so bad as we were talking. It was like, this isn't working. This is not working. This is a so this is supposed to be a serious conversation talking about you know your sexuality and I'm supposed to be explaining this and you've got the giggle fits like a junior higher because you are. Okay, and so um, you know it, it, it just and it, it caused me to just go, okay, I don't want to I'll never talk to you again about this thing. Okay. Well, that wasn't the right thing to do or to think. They needed to explain, but they needed to be done in a gradual sense. Okay, here's where I'm at right now. I think you need to fully understand the filling of the Holy Spirit. I really believe that. I think you as a church, you as a believer, need to understand. But you can't be intimidated by the fact that it's a confusing topic where if we were just to leave it where we are right now. Then you say, well, well there's, there's no way of putting this all together. There is a way of putting it all together. And it fully explains what you need to understand that it is, there is a reason why people are confused because the terminology is kind of cross-referenced. Now, where I want to go from here is show you, here's what the New Testament and the epistles give in detail about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And they give a lot of comments about it. And they give you a lot of information about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And they make it very, very clear after you go through all the epistles with what they are and how they differ. And why in the book of Acts they were using the terminology in the same way because they didn't understand it. But as time went on, all of a sudden, oh, I got it. This is how it worked. This is this. This is that. And it makes perfect sense, but it takes time. And for me to show you the rest of that information is about another half hour tonight. And I can talk fast, but not that fast. Okay, Hang on to it. Put a plug right in there. And let's just hang on to it with this in mind. Okay, That I didn't go where I wanted to go, but, at, but hold this thought. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a must. It's commanded in, that, in Ephesians chapter 5 to understand exactly how that worked and that it's not the same as your baptism. You've got to come back. We're going to deal with it the next time we gather. And we're going to look at it in depth. And we're going to look at the differences in the epistles, how in the epistles it's all fleshed out. But trust me for the moment, you need the filling. For the moment, if you're a believer, you've already, had the, you've already got the Holy Spirit. You got baptized in the Spirit and you got saved. I'll prove that to you from multiple texts. The question isn't whether you get more of the Holy Spirit. The question is whether the Holy Spirit gets more of you. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit. Okay, what happens when I'm filled? 
Do I, do I do something ecstatic? Not necessarily. Will I feel all the burdens and I will be so happy, I will be like, you know, I will be like, what's her name? Dorothy returning to Kansas. Okay. It'll be just glorious. Maybe not so. Maybe not so. But you will live victoriously. You will have the source and the abilities to be able to overcome and serve, overcome problems and serve. Is it going to be like, oh wow, I, I will have no temptations? Well, wait a minute. People in the Old Testament that had filling, did they have still problems? Yeah, yeah they, but they had the ability to deal with it. That's the difference. And some of you might sit here and say, well, you know what, if I were in the Old Testament, if I were in the Old Testament, it was, would have been so much better off. God would have spoken, and I would understand, and God spoke to everybody on a regular. No. You've got so much more than they do in the Old Testament. You have so much more scripture. You have so much more of God speaking. You are so much better off because you've got the Holy Spirit all the time in you, all of you, that he's there all the time according to the promise of Jesus Christ. That he said that in John 14. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. They didn't even have that much. You've got so much more. And on top of that, how much Bible do you have compared to them? You've got a whole lot more. And he's given you the other ministries of the Holy Spirit, such as the sealing, the adopting. You have other benefits of the Holy Spirit. You've got the guiding, the leading, the reminding. You are so rich in Christ. You can live for them. You can do much better than they in the Old Testament. So I'll stop there feeling totally like I blew it. But um, I'll feel guilty in the Holy Spirit. Um, but you hang on with these thoughts that we're going to be dealing and showing difference of the indwelling and the filling how they plan out the Gospels and our late epistles. Until then, let's take advantage of prayer that the Holy Spirit makes intercession with us. Let's do our prayer time this evening. Then you can visit, pick up your kids. In about 10 minutes, they're going to be dismissed. Thanks.